0: This is a, a version of a longer paper, um, so I'm just going to apologize for having to skip and, and improvise a bit. Um, before looking at the documents, I thought I'd begin with some reflections on traces, uh, just to um, really to think about the, 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 the significance of the trace. When we look at the sometimes faint yet highly suggestible signs, tracks and markings left by migratory crossings of Indians through Oxford, what are we in fact looking at? What are we looking for? What are the forces of chance and contingency that left these stray and disparate marks in the first place? To ask such questions implies considering not only what it is to trace networks as the display and the the workshop today are doing, but also what is involved when we network traces, what connections might we impose that may not be there in the record at all. So to network traces then implies thinking about the degree of reading into the record, of elaboration and interpretation that these traces either invite or permit. Trace, Derrida reminds us, is within language the shadow of something meaningful that remains after the word has overwhelmed the thing. Trace then is suggestible, it is on the edge of things, it is equivocal. Through the traces, the faint tracks, the marks and the margins left by Indian students and Indian texts on their way through Oxford. These traces obviously not of the same order of meaning as Derrida's trace, Yet there is perhaps a link that comes from that connotation of equivocation and indeterminacy. Moreover, both these Indian traces and Derrida's trace connote what remains. As we've heard from our first speaker who opened today's workshop, Amitav Ghosh has also suggestively pondered the significance of traces in his work, most particularly perhaps in his travelogue in an antique land, that Anshuman Mandal has already mentioned. An in an antique land is animated throughout by an interest in piecing together the distant past from mere traces. Less concerned with the trace as an effective language, more concerned with the trace as a residue of history, a faint mark of the human on the torn and fragmentary page. In an antique land is also at pains to point out the inadvertency, the chanceness, the contingency, not only in the processes through which historical traces are left behind, but also the contingency that is involved in their discovery or rediscovery as today, and also in their interpretation. I've just pulled out a few quotes, just most of them one-liners, from In an Antique Land to to capture this inadvertency, this contingency of trace. The passage, such as it is, provides little enough to go on. If I hesitate to call it love, it is only because the documents offer no certain proof. The names are puzzling. And then a longer quote. That is all, no more than a name and a greeting in the record. But the reference comes to us from a moment in time when the only people for whom we can even begin to imagine properly human individual existences are the literate and the consequential, the wazirs and the sultans, the chroniclers and the priests, the people who had the power to inscribe themselves physically upon time. But the slave of Khalaf's letter was not, that, was not of that company. In his instance, it was a mere accident that those barely discernible traces that ordinary people leave, happen to leave upon the world, happen to have been preserved. It is nothing less than a miracle that anything is known about him at all. So, common to these two takes on traces that I've, that I've begun with, that of Derrida on the one hand, that of Amitabh Ghosh on the other, different as they are in many respects, is a recognition of the suggestibility as well as the ambiguity of the trace. Here we find the seeming marks of conversations and exchanges that in some cases may not have happened or that may have happened differently to what the record now suggests. As that last quotation from In An Antique Land suggested, another important point is that the more ordinary the person, the more sporadic and faint the trace and the more contingent. Indeed, it is a testimony to the influence and power, by contrast, of many of the figures whose traces upon time we are looking at today, that their archival remains, their tracks and traces on paper, appear to read quite clearly. Following on from the apparent readability of what remains, which is animated by the suggestibility of the trace, of any trace, It is, of course, the more seductive to construe connections and to make links, to insinuate stories into the gaps between the traces, which is partly what In an Antique Land does. And yet, to quote again from that book, there is little enough to go on. The incompletion of traces means that our reading of them necessarily depends on improvisation and intuition, making good guesses, drawing analogies that link from the better known and move towards the less known. Provocative and compelling as what remains may be, all such reconstruction remains provisional and ad hoc, always already a misreading. So this is all by way of qualifier to to some of my remarks on on the traces that follow. Indeed, the... The way in which traces may suggest a misreading or invite us to construe a story of contact that may not in fact have taken place is well illustrated by the sample of, um, of traces that I'll come on to second, and that is the letter from Tagore to, to his great friend, Charlie Andrews, C.F. Andrews. Though this, these letters now stand as a, as a record of an important Indian-British friendship held within the Oxford Libraries, Theirs was a contact. It's important to say that never took place in Oxford, though both Andrews and Tagore visited Oxford at different points in their lives. So there we have, as it were, the trace of a contact held now within Oxford, and yet not, not officially an Oxford trace. One, one more provisional and or, or a prefatory remark. Um, We might, in networking traces, think also in terms of the disparate, strange attractions, then, that work between and across the traces, or of frameworks of ideas that drew the traces together. For example, of that, quote, vast and sincere regard for Hinduism that Professor Max Muller shared with his Indian correspondents. in the case of the Max Muller letters that we'll look at in a moment. So what I mean here is that we might think of diverse, now coinciding, now divergent energies and preoccupations, political, cultural, religious, that drew Indian and British scholars and students together in this very early period of exchange, Oxford, India, and that produced these records of conversations held or wished for or both. So we might think then of ideas in common, shared structures of feeling that pull these traces together into some sort of warp and weft, into into a texture of exchange. My first sample text uh, comes from a book of letters to Friedrich Max Müller, the professor of comparative philology from Indian friends and contacts in India in the 1880s. These letters were collected by him as Letters from Indian friends, so themed because of their Indianness and they they offer a a, a good case in point of of what i'm trying to suggest of, a, of of a framework of ideas that that links disparate traces together. Could you possibly hold up the the book it, it, it's one sees it, that there are many, many many, letters by different hands bound together, folded together in this book, all of them letters to thanks to, to um, Max Müller. Significantly, none of the letters are concerned, though they're written in the 1880s, heyday of, of, of formal imperialism, none of the letters are concerned with colonialism um, or, or anti-colonial issues for that matter though they are profoundly, powerfully motivated by ideas of communion between India and Britain. And importantly, by notions of oneness, the oneness, the religious one, the spiritual oneness that potentially might bind India and Britain together. The oneness that underlies all religious belief. The sense of oneness had been most actively promoted across the 19th century by the Brahmo Samaj, an organization in which several of Max Müller's correspondents in this, in this uh, collection of letters um, were concerned, especially the great Brahmo figure K.C. Sen, Keshap Chandra Sen, who, of, who, four of whose letters are in that, in that collection of letters. V.S. Mitra in letter seven, for example, speaks of Max Müller's sympathy with the natives of this land in every matter connected with their welfare it speaks of, of, the again, the oneness, the spiritual oneness motivating Max Müller in his openness to Indians and also inspiring his letter back to Müller to express admiration for his work. So just a moment then of background on, um, on, on these, these figures, these names that, that I've been citing. Um, Some of you will have had background on Max Müller if you went on the the walking tour uh, earlier, but for those who didn't, um, Friedrich Max Müller was the professor of comparative philology here at Oxford in the late 19th century, a great Sanskritist. He held various positions in the university from 1851. Despite the huge disappointment of losing out in the election of Bowdoin professor of Sanskrit to his great rival, Monia Williams, and their, their portraits of both figures in the, in the display cases. Despite that disappointment, Max Muller continued to pursue his studies in Sanskrit and the Vedas at, at Oxford, as I was saying, professor of comparative philology at All Souls. And he was widely known about and respected in India, as these sample letters show. As German-born and liberal Lutheran in his religious thinking, Max Muller had been deemed by congregation here at Oxford to stand too far outside the British establishment to be elected to uh, the Bowdoin chair. Across his career, Max Muller cultivated a number of friendships with Indians through correspondence and invited many Indian visitors to Oxford and in particular he became close to Keshap chandra sen a quick word then on his arch rival Monia williams bombay born interestingly he was elected oxford's burden professor of sanskrit in 1860 and his major achievement in terms of india british relations here in the university which we really can't fail to mention today was the foundation of the indian institute across the road in 1884 with its weather vane elephant which is which is on our poster. In 1875, Monier Williams first put the idea to congregation to found an institute to provide a place of study for ICS probationers and Indian students, combining a library, reading room and museum. And this really became the hub of India-Britain interaction in the, the late 19th century here in the university. The foundation stone of the Indian Institute was laid by the Prince of Wales, interestingly, the Prince of Wales in 1883, and opened by the Vice-Chancellor, Benjamin Joad, who we'll hear more about later today from from Richard Surabji, on the 14th of October, 1884. As for Keshav Chandrasen, the proselytiser of Brahmo Samaj, from the time that he joined the organisation in 1857, his work throughout was driven by an interest in finding points of synthesis between the different religions of the world, as was the work of Max Müller. So this this brought them together. I should also say, which I um, had omitted to mention, that Max Müller is the great translator of the Rig Veda. And it was in admiration of this translation, this work of his, that, that so many Indian seers and scholars wrote to him over the years. Uh, asking his opinion, too, on questions of philology, questions of religious interpretation. So the heterogeneous appearance and form of Max Müller's letters, bound together in rough chronological order, as as we saw there, is symptomatic of the kind of incomplete network I'm trying to draw out, of the truncated, contingent connectivity in which the letter writers were engaged and also of their binding interests in common, despite disparate locations and concerns. Again and again, there's an emphasis placed on, quote, the union of the East and the West, a union that was part fostered by Max Müller's work in translation, also by the theism to which several of the letter writers subscribed, and subsequently by the further contacts and exchanges being acted out on these pages. And here I've selected, I mean, there are any number of uh, very interesting letters in this, in this bundle, but I've selected um, a letter of, uh, from another prominent member of Brahmo Samaj, Debendranath Tagore, the father of the great poet, who I'll come back to in a moment. There's his signature, and now I'd just like to move back a few pages in the letter to where uh, Debendranath Tagore refers explicitly to Union of East and West, and of course does so in the somewhat cliched terms of the time of the West as, as advanced technologically in the East as a, as a, as a repository, somewhat, um, uh, uh, somewhat static now of, of, of religious uh, knowledge and understanding, and he writes here, by the publication of the Rig Veda and the Upanishads, You have brought within easy reach of European scholars the thoughts and aspirations of our ancient riches, hitherto hidden in inaccessible manuscripts. And it is to be hoped that the dissemination of the knowledge of our ancient literature will help to cement the bonds of union between the two people who, brought up under a common roof, parted from each other and scattered over distant quarters of the globe, again to be brought together under the mysterious decree of an all ruling providence, of an all ruling providence there at the bottom of the page. And the sense of communion, um, which I mean, here a kind of Aryan community, um, to, you know, to, to, you know, not to beat about the bush, the, the sense of communion between Max Muller and India was acted out in a very real way within Oxford. As all eminent men of letters, as well as seers and gurus and scholars and students and passers-by really, um, also, when they visited Oxford in the later decades of the 19th century, made sure to visit Max Muller. He was, you know, a figure on the landscape. Noram Gardens, where he lived, was well known to be a thoroughfare for Indian students plying back and forth to, join, to enjoy his hospitality. Cornelia Sarabji met with him on many occasions, in when she was a student. Uh, Viva Kananda visited in 1896. And Casey Sen recalled uh, a halcyon day, exchanging ideas of you know, the, 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 Chris, the Christian um, framework behind Brahma Samaj, um, uh, arguably. Um, he he, uh, record talking about this with Max Muller when they met in 1870. I'm just going to skip a bit uh, uh, more on Casey Sen and Max Muller in in the interest of time. I just want to end with um, just by drawing your attention to uh, the letter written in 1881 from India from Calcutta by Keshav Chandra Sen to his mm-hmm. dear friend Max Muller, um, recalling that day back in 1870 when they had spoken. <coughs> They're talking about a controversy in the Brahma Samaj which had broken out around the marriage of uh, Casey Sen's daughter. In writing to me, you need not conceal your real feelings. Discriminating criticism cannot pain me. Even the reprimands of a true friend are acceptable and must prove beneficial. I've read your letters with the deepest interest, and I only wish I could sit with you under one of those shady trees in Oxford which I saw during my short visit there and talk over the many important subjects referred to therein for hours together. My heart is full. Well, with full hearts in mind and with ideas of, um, of Christian theism also in mind as one of the structures of feeling that might draw some of these traces together, I'd now like very, very quickly to finish up by um, looking at the, the Rhodes House documents, the Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore, son of Debendranath Tagore, and Charlie Andrews' correspondence. C.F. Andrews and Rabindranath Tagore first came into contact around Tagore's influential trip to the West in 1912 to promote the English translations of his poems collected as Gitanjali. C.F. Andrews was present at the famous 7th of July soiree in London when uh, Tagore was introduced to many of those who had become his, his promoters, his fans, his readers and his helpmates. In subsequent years they were regularly in contact. Andrews Visited Shanti Niketan in its very early years, and travelled with Tagore to Japan in 1915. Discussed with him closely his ideas concerning the capitalist exploitation of the East. He perhaps a, a, a note in common with the with the uh, with Iqbal. Um, so discussed with him his ideas concerning capitalist exploitation, aided and abetted by nationalism. And later, Tagore put some of these ideas to paper in his in his famous essay on nationalism. Andrews acted often as Tagore's intermediary in literary as well as financial affairs. And in, for example, 1920, Andrews twice wrote to Tagore's British publisher Macmillan on his behalf concerning questions of the translation of his work. Indeed, Andrews held the copyright of Tagore's work in English. Tagore visited Oxford Amongst other visits in 1913, in May, when he was widely feted following the award of the Nobel Prize, he lectured at Manchester College in 1920. Also, the dinner which the Indian Marjolists or Oxford India Society gave him at the Randolph is vividly evoked in an essay by Shahid Shirawadi. From the garlanding with a with a misprepared funeral wreath at the station because Oxford florists weren't used to you know. Uh, celebratory loose wreaths being <laughs> loaded on <laughs> VIPs for visiting from India. So, he, so they pulled out this stiff funeral wreath at the station. The dinner at the Randolph, where Tagore was, was observed eating very modestly. The statuesque figure of Tagore as he was observed being punted along the Charwell. His walk through the streets of Oxford and being mistaken by passing children for Father Christmas, (laughs) his his great beard. And finally, one of the last fixtures in his visit to Oxford, there was lunch at the home of Robert Bridges, where, as Shirawadi put it, east and west physically met the eastern grace of Tagore being offset by the unexotic poet laureate, Robert Bridges. Okay, so these are the broad strokes of background to the ongoing conversation based on a sympathy self-consciously participated in, transcending national divides between, political divides also between Tagore and C.F. Andrews. And here, um, I just wanted to draw your attention to this preoccupation with ideas of, of religious um uh, interaction um uh, hoped for union which are rooted through interestingly um, as with the max Müller letters through ideas of christian love and and the uh, in some cases an an, an an abject figuration of christ but also an intensely human figuration of christ and there's something about that conjunction of of christian love and the human uh, and, and communion between nations that certainly was inspiring to people like Max Muller and Casey Sen, but also here um, are at least interesting to, uh, worth entertaining to Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, for those of you sitting at the back, I'll, I'll, I'll read it from the, from the screen. I have read your book on Christ. It made me think... The mode of self-expression in a Christian life is in love which works. In that of a Hindu, it is in, a, it is in love which contemplates and enjoys the spiritual emotion as an end in itself. The attitude of mind that realises a superhuman in a human setting has rendered a great service to civilization, just as its perversion, <coughs> which means, by which he means um, political hypocrisy, has been the cause of an awful and widespread mischief. And then finally, I want to end on um, in one of the letters in this um, in this collection of, of um, five or six, uh, Tagore writing from Chittagong is asking Andrews, um, this is now in the 1930s, to um, if he can publish some of his work in the in the Spectator. Um, Sorry, Lucy, it's actually the, the typed one. Yes, thank you. Um, it, it's, it, it, it isn't a poem to, to recommend Tagore's to work to us, qua you know, poetry, qua trans- in, inspiring poetry. Um, but w- what he's talking about is ways in which, um, in the, the, the polarised political climate of the 1930s, um, you know, the name of Christ is being invoked by, by different parties and, um, and, and, and is, is being perverted, Christian ideas are being perverted. And I'll just I'll end just by reading um, half of this rather strange uh, poem, which I don't think was ever published by The Spectator. From his eternal seat, Christ comes down to this earth where ages ago in the bitter cup of death, he poured his deathless life for those who came to the call and those who remained away. He looks about him and sees the weapons of evil that wounded his own age. The arrogant spikes and spears, the slim sly knives, the scimitar and diplomatic sheath, crooked and cruel, are hissing and raining sparks as they are sharpened on monster wheels. But the most fearful of them all at the hands of the slaughterers are those whereon has been engraved his own name that are fashioned from the texts of his own words fused in the fire of hatred and hammered by hypocritical greed. He presses his hand upon his heart. My heart is full. Thank you very much.